Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 133, International Space Station and Beyond. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. If you're new to the show, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, historians. We bring them on to go and dive deep into everything human spaceflight. We're coming up on 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station, an orbiting platform that has provided countless insights into living and working in space. It's brought us uh, more on understanding the universe, about the effects on gravity, and about the benefits that research can bring to all of humankind. The International Space Station has taught us what humans are truly capable of and inspired so many more to pursue great things. So last episode, we sat down with Dr. Gary Kitmacher, Communications and Education Mission Manager in the International Space Station Program, and an author of several books about the space station, among other things. And he took us back in time to discuss some of the early space station concepts and the space stations of history up to the International Space Station. Today, we're continuing our conversation with Gary, starting with early concepts for space station freedom. We detail the life of the International Space Station thus far, and we explore what we can expect for the future of space stations. This episode was inspired in part by a comic reader on Twitter who wanted to know more about a specific part of International Space Station history. We touch on that during this today's episode, and thanks for submitting the idea, comic reader. So, here we go. The International Space Station and beyond with Dr. Gary Kitmacher. Enjoy. T minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Gary, welcome back to the podcast to continue our conversation about Thanks space stations. Thanks for having me. So we left off kind of at this overlap period with Mir. We were talking about the end of Mir and the beginning of Space Station. I wanted to start with Space Station, but just from talking a little bit just beforehand, it really, I think starting in the late 90s wouldn't be appropriate. We really have to start kind of even back in the 80s uh, to start talking about the concept and the early ideas for what would be the International Space Station? Well, really the shuttle and the space station were both thought of at the same time, and they were intended to go hand-in-hand. The shuttle was the means to build and support and logistically supply the space station, and the space station was necessarily going to have to look like something that the shuttle could build. And uh, the first ideas got started even before the program was begun uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, Here at the Johnson Space Center, we focused on something called the Space Operations Center. And it was going to be a base for doing all kinds of activities in low Earth orbit. Uh, At Marshall Space Center in Alabama, they were focused more on utilization and science and payloads. Mm. And uh, they had been working closely with the Europeans on the space lab, and so a lot of their ideas were based on a a takeoff from from the space lab that was being carried up in the shuttle. Mm. Uh, We wanted to get the president to actually announce the beginning of the program, and uh, once James Beggs came in as the NASA administrator, about the time that Ronald Reagan became president, uh, that was really the focus, was getting Reagan to announce the program. And it didn't happen very quickly. Uh, We kept expecting it to be announced, but it didn't actually occur until the State of the Union address 1984. And uh, Ronald Reagan announced that we would build a space station. We would do it within a decade, so it would be up in orbiting by the early 1990s. Uh, and one of the things that he announced and that he told James Beggs right from the start was we wanted to do this in cooperation and co- collaboration with our uh, friendly partners. And uh, so Beggs went out... Um, Around the around the world, uh, looking for a partnership to establish 
uh, with the Japanese, the Europeans, the Canadians, uh, anybody who we had worked with previously on uh, space activities. And so that was the beginnings of the international aspect of the space station. Okay, so all of these... Um all of these different countries maybe not necessarily had fully formed space agencies, but they had maybe agencies, government agencies, dedicated to space activities in some way? Uh, there were a variety. Um, okay. Some of the agencies had worked with us previously, and some of them had worked as agencies, and some of them had specific industries within their country. So, for hmm. instance, in Canada... Uh, while there was a Canadian space agency, there was a specific company that was focused on the development of the robotic arm used on the space shuttle. Mm. And they wanted to build a next-generation arm that would be used on the space station. In the case of the Europeans, although there was, uh, there's actually been several European space agencies that had evolved over the years. There were also specific companies in Germany and Italy uh, that had been responsible for designing and building uh, modules like the Space Lab, and they wanted to build modules uh, for the International Space Station. Hmm. Uh, some of these actually would go through uh, a, a, um, an evolution. For instance, the Space Hab Company, which was a commercial company, one of the early NASA forays into commercialization in the mid to late 1980s, uh, their module was actually built by the Italians, and so um, hmm. they would become the basis for modules that would be built for the space station. Was that the primary reason for collaboration was for the, the pitch was, hey, we want to go and build this modular space station and we want you to build modules. Was that the pitch? Um, it was part of the reason. Really, the, the international aspect grew out of the fact that uh, because we were launching it on the space shuttle, they had to be modular. The shuttle was only capable of launching a specific mass and a specific size. We knew that they had to be uh, within about 60 feet long, 15 feet in diameter, and depending on the altitude that we would place it in orbit, between about 30 and 50,000 pounds uh, for each launch. And so, um, so we were very constrained by the payload capacity of the shuttle, uh, but it also led to kind of a natural um, uh, mechanism to decide that this country's uh, participation would be limited to these pieces that would go up uh, in one segment or in multiple segments, in the case of the Japanese. Okay, yeah, we had to, we were thinking modular, we were thinking and, and when it comes to the logic of how this was going to happen, and I guess what we were pitching, we were thinking about, um, I know in-space assembly was one of those elements versus, I guess, building a larger rocket, because you, you already mentioned the space shuttle as one of the drivers for what would be the components of the International Space Station. So assembly was going to be a big part of it, which meant spacewalks, which meant uh, robotics to really make this thing to come together. Uh there was discussion right along about building a large booster based on the shuttle, uh, something called the Shuttle C, uh, although there was never really an initiative to get going with that. And uh, shuttle, we were already uh, launching shuttles at the rate of about one a month by 1984-1985, and uh, so we anticipated that the shuttle would be a capable workhorse. Uh, we were already doing some EVAs. Uh, when we started looking at what it would take to build and as assemble a space station, we came up with what um, some people called the wall of EVA because it was now going to take not just tens or or dozens of hours, it was going to take hundreds and thousands of hours of EVA wow. in order to assemble the station. And uh, that was one of the uh, areas that caused us to go back and do a lot of um, relooking, scrubbing, trying to uh, pare down the amount of activity that would be required to assemble the station. Hmm. So when we were thinking about what it would take 
Tell me about, um, you know, in terms of resources, in terms of how we thought this would all come together. I think some of the early designs was Space Station Freedom, and then how we went from that concept and that idea for how to build this space station to what was eventually the International Space Station. Uh, we started looking at... Um the modules, that was um, an area that I was particularly focused on. I was part of uh, what was called the Man Systems Division. And so here at the Johnson Space Center in Building 15, we built the first mock-up of a module of a space station out of foam core, out of um, basically a cardboard and uh, styrofoam. Uh, it was based very much on the Space Lab modules, racks similar to what were inside the Space Lab module. And uh, we looked at, well, how many of these modules would we need? How large could the modules be? And then other people started looking at how would you connect the modules together uh, to the power supply, to radiators, to the other systems that would be required to support a space station. And out of all of that study uh, came the concept of the common module, where all of the modules looked essentially the same, and the power tower. It was a long truss, and then up at one end of a truss was a T-shaped segment that attached all of the solar power cells. Mm. And at the opposite end of the long truss were a series of about five of these common modules attached together. Some of these modules would be habitation modules. Some of them would be laboratory modules. So that was our initial design of what would later become Space Station Freedom. It wasn't named for a couple of years okay. at this point. Um, the common module, we thought, was a good idea because we uh, likened it to building an airliner where airliners are turned out, um, if you look at the Boeing airliners in particular, uh, the fuselages of most of the smaller airliners are the same. Hmm. And they just keep building segments of fuselage, and they cut them off depending on the kind of airliner. A 727 is one length, the 737 is a different length, and then they put a nose and a tail on it. And we were looking at modules that would be built in the same way. So you would hmm. build a module to a certain length, put uh, the ends on either side, and hatches around certain pieces. Uh, from that, we evolved a little bit to the idea that modules would be specialized. Uh, some of the modules uh, would be used to connect other modules. This was because if we had too many hatches and uh, too many docking attachments, uh, which the first common modules had a series of four docking hatches uh, and docking segments around the periphery, around the circumference, and then one on either end, then the module was too heavy to put much inside during launch. Mm. And also the, the, uh, the hatches used up an awful lot of the interior volume, and so you really couldn't put as much on the inside. So we very quickly evolved to a, a, a long module, which became the U.S. Lab and the U.S. Hab, and nodes, which were short modules, but which contained all of docking interfaces. Mm. And in fact, that's still the design that we use today, where we have three nodes and we have the U.S. Lab, uh, which is the long module. The um, Interestingly enough, the European module, they decided they could make even shorter by putting some of the systems on the end cones of the module. So the European Columbus module started out like the U.S. modules but grew shorter. Uh, but the Japanese module, on the other hand, stayed exactly the same length as it was originally. And in fact, it's now the longest module of the space station. But they were all supposed to be that long originally. Oh, interesting. So what was the driver for the size of the International Space Station and the modules that would be quote-unquote needed for this orbital laboratory? We were initially looking at a crew size of at least eight people hmm. and uh, perhaps growing to as many as 12 people. 
Um, there were some discussions early early on uh, in the late 1970s, early 80s, that perhaps uh, a size of only four people would be adequate. And then there were other studies that said, well, with four people, you really can't do as much utilization, as much science, and so you need a larger crew. And so there was uh, uh, some discussion and give and take on that. And um, we wound up going for a crew size of eight and that necessitated the two large modules, the HAB and the LAB, and a series of smaller nodes that would contain some of the supporting systems. Hmm. Uh, one of the areas that I got involved in early on in around 86, 87, was looking at what were all of the systems and how would they best be packaged. And so uh, we went through all of the different kinds of hardware that you might put on a space station. Uh, we had to design what kinds of uh, support systems we were going to be supplying. For instance, in the case of food, we thought a frozen and refrigerated food system would be the best. It was the most palatable. Uh, we had a lot of our food specialists at the time contributing, and that necessitated refrigerators and freezers. Uh, when we got into some of the budget battles, as well as electricity battles of how much power they used, mm. other people came in and said, no, uh, refrigerators and freezers are not good. They use a lot of power. It's a lot more expensive to build those. And so let's go to an ambient temperature food sup support system, mm. uh, something like uh, what became MREs in the military um, right. actually started with a lot of the study work that we were doing here at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, we looked at uh, things like irradiated food, which at that time in the 1980s uh, had not been certified, not been approved by the U.S. Federal Food and Drug Administration, hmm. but um, because of some of the pioneering work that we were doing here, uh, that was later adopted. And so now you see a lot of ambient temperature food on your supermarket shelves as a direct result. All right. As a direct result of the needs driven by... By the space station the space and going station. to an ambient food system. Wow. So on this topic of systems, tell me about the logic of designing the space station as we see it now with a truss segment, with, with solar arrays, with batteries, with a the habitable modules, the way that we're just Well, as we that. started out, uh, the different systems were going to be uh, developed and built by different, what we called work packages, different contractors and different NASA centers managing them. And so the power system was originally going to be a product of the Glenn, uh, what is now the Glenn Research Center up in Ohio. Uh, the modules became a product of the Marshall Space Center in Alabama, although with an important role for Johnson in managing those modules. Uh, a lot of the supporting systems, uh, the guidance, navigation, control, uh, computers were being developed here at the Johnson Space Center because of our role in uh, managing the spaceflight program. Uh, we looked at um, how do you package those systems and how do you tie them together. On the inside of the modules, uh, we looked at the space lab racks and we went to a somewhat uh, simpler and more elegant design of a common rack that could be put into the floor, the ceiling, and the walls of the space station. Uh, they were basically refrigerator-sized up to a mass of about 1,000 pounds, and uh, they were sized in such a way that if we ever got punctured by a micrometeorite or a piece of orbital debris and we had to plug a hole, the rack could be pulled away from the wall very quickly to gain access to the pressure shell. Hmm. Uh, keep in mind, we were looking at how do we maintain these modules over a very long period of time, decades. And uh, so it was very important that it be modular in approach. And so uh, a lot of the keywords that we, we wrote into the documentation, both for our requirements and into the contracts, uh, were associated with modularity hmm. and upgradability and um, so that we would be able to recover from any kind of uh, problems and issues in orbit. Hmm. 
The other systems, such as the uh, solar power cells and the radiators and eventually even the computers, uh, we looked at how can you put those things on the outside of the station, how can you attach them. Originally on the Space Operations Center, it was a somewhat simpler design approach, um, but they were not quite as easy to put into place for, during assembly, hmm. and if you ever had to change them out, it would be difficult Thinking to about take EVA. them apart. Thinking about space and so looking at EVA and robotics and ah. how you assemble the pieces, uh, we designed around this idea of the central truss and attaching these as, uh, as different modular entities that could be attached to the truss. The truss itself went through quite an evolution. Originally, we were going to build the truss uh, out of what we called sticks and balls, kind of a um, of a uh, Lego set in orbit, lots of little pieces. <laughs> and because of some of the concerns associated with all the EVA hours, uh, we went to a modular truss approach where the trusses were pre-integrated so we would fill the truss up with as much of the equipment as we could it would be pre-assembled and then we would launch them into fairly large segments on the shuttle okay. and uh, so from about 1985 through about 1989 or so uh, those aspects of the space station and what became space station freedom uh, grew pretty definitive now, keep in mind, we did a lot of the early work at the different NASA centers uh, looking at the design approach to use and specifying the requirements. Ultimately, what was built was an outgrowth of the contract competition. Uh, so, for instance, um, a number of us from Johnson Space Center, because of our uh, integral work on the modules actually went off to work package one into the Marshall Space Center. Uh, I was one of those people who worked out of Marshall for about a year huh. uh, during the source board and uh, ultimately what came back from the different bidders was what was built for the space station and still uh, looks pretty much like the space station today. Now some of the things um, the contractors and NASA did not necessarily get right. And for instance one of these things was the size of the modules. Uh, NASA specified in the requirements that the contractors were to bid to that uh, the modules were to take up the full capacity of the space shuttle payload bay mm. and so one of the bidders uh, on the work patch one contract the two bidders by the way were Boeing and Martin Marietta and uh, so one of the bidders said that they could put a 60 or 65 foot long module and they could launch it uh, fully outfitted fully loaded with gear and then the other contractor said well a fully outfitted module would never be able to be lifted by the shuttle mm. into the required orbit and therefore we would have to either shorten the modules or we would have to launch the modules up largely empty and then send them up send the uh, the interior contents up later in logistics modules and in fact because I had been involved with shuttle payload integration uh, I, one of my jobs during the source board was to write a white paper comparing the two approaches and who was right. And my, um, uh, my statement was neither one is right um, <laughs> because NASA specified the wrong requirements. So, so what was the need then? What, what did we end up choosing? Uh, what we ultimately ended up doing was shortening most of the modules hmm. and uh, launching them up partially outfitted so okay. as much of the equipment that could be integrally uh, integrated inside as we could given the mass limitations okay so the the modules wound up not being uh, they were probably never going to be 60 feet long but the original modules of the space station were supposed to be about 48 feet long and in fact now the longest u.s module the u.s lab is only i believe about 30 feet long okay and so uh, we did have to constrain the length 
because of the mass limitations. So you're defining these requirements for the contractor and, and going having this back and forth with the contractors for some of the U.S. segments. Now, what about the international side? Uh, the internationals were going through a similar kind of approach, and in some cases they were a little bit further behind us. Hmm. So, for instance, although we were working right from the very outset with the Japanese and with the Canadians and with the Europeans, uh, they were learning a lot from how we were looking at the situation. Hmm. For instance, as I mentioned earlier, we were building the mock-ups of the modules here at Johnson, and uh, the work was being done within our group that was not in engineering, it was in the Space and Life Sciences organization called Man Systems, Man-Systems. These days, it probably would not be politically correct to call it that. That's right, human but, rated. Um, That's but what we, we were now. not um, so forward thinking at that time. <laughs> uh, it was interesting because the Japanese came. Uh, I remember uh, Sh- Mr. Shiraki, who was their program manager, came very early on, probably in 86 or 87, and we toured him through the mock ups and showed him how we were approaching the design. And they thought it was very interesting that we would have such a focus on the human aspect of the space station. That was something he said the Japanese really did not know how to do. Um, The next year, they said, we're coming to Houston with our manned systems advisory group. And so they learned very quickly from us how to establish exactly what we already had in place here in Houston. And um, pretty soon they were using the same approach. Some of the aspects uh, were political. For instance, uh, the Japanese, just as we have to fight in Congress for uh, monetary support to build all of these things, had to do the same thing with their government. And uh, they went through and they said, you know, we want to build this large laboratory and along with the laboratory, a logistics module and an external platform. There was a lot of concern over robotics. And so the Japanese said, well, the Canadians are building the main robotic arm for the station, but we'll build a robotic arm too. So a lot of these things wound up on the Japanese module. Mm -hmm. When we ran into problems such as the mass limitations of the uh, modules the Japanese because they had sold it to their government that they were going to have a big laboratory mm. stuck with their big laboratory oh. as a pro as a uh, compared with the US where we reduced the size and that's how the uh, the Japanese wound up with the largest lab on the station all right now um, tell me about construction. You already alluded a little bit earlier in our discussion about this wall of EVA since with some of the early construction. Tell me about how that started and worked. Well, we, um, we're, we had a series of EVAs going on in the shuttle program through the early 1980s. Uh, we had rescued some satellites that had been put into um, errant orbits. They weren't the right orbit or the, state, the uh, satellite did not start working the way it was supposed to. And so NASA and its shuttle were sent up to rescue the satellites. Uh, Sometimes activities went as planned, other times they didn't. Uh, We sent up some tests of space station hardware. For instance, we built um, a segment of truss off of the space shuttle, and some of the problems that we focused on during that test said it was going to perhaps be more difficult than we had originally assumed. Uh, We had a study conducted by astronaut Bill Fisher um, and Charlie Price of the engineering directorate. So it was called the Fisher-Price study. And they said, oh, this EVA situation could be uh, pretty difficult with thousands of hours required to build the station. And especially if something doesn't go right, if we can't get certain things put in place, then it could affect the entire assembly sequence. Mm. So uh, that was what got us looking at the idea of the pre-integrated trust. Uh, some of the people in the engineering directorate um, who are still here today uh, actually patented that idea of the uh, pre-integrated trust. And so that changed our direction a little bit, although ultimately 
the number of EVAs that has that have been required on the International Space Station has been far more than any prior program. Still, in the uh, I believe thousands of hours now. Uh, I think we're up into the 200 EVAs or thereabouts yeah. uh, today, and so um, so it's required quite a number of EVAs and a lot of activity, just as was foretold back in the 1980s. Yeah. For sure, I think yeah, we're we're way up there, thousands. Yeah, I think fifteen hundred hours. I think was the last statistic for the last spacewalk that we did. So it's definitely because it's it's not just we're not we're beyond construction now. This is construction. This is maintenance. You know, we're talking about switching out the batteries because the batteries because the batteries don't have other a, components that have been up there for decades now. That's exactly and, uh, right. So tell me about some of the early years of space station with some of the smaller segments. You know, we're talking STS. 88 and Expedition 1, um, life there and how that technology has improved over time, going from the small station and then eventually building on with this assembly sequence, what changed, what upgraded, and how what we learned improved our understanding of how to operate this thing. Well, uh, I'll bring in NASA MIR here because NASA MIR was a program that we conducted between about 1995 and 1998. So it was leading up to the first uh, assembly missions of the ISS. And especially for those of us who are working on the inside of the space station, it was very important. Um, we learned uh, what kinds of equipment we would need. We learned uh, how to work with the Russians. We learned how to um, establish uh, appropriate documentation and integration processes. And so a lot of that was done early on. Uh, in my own case, um, I had been the stowage manager on the shuttle during the mid-80s and also was responsible for integrating a lot of the payloads on the shuttle. And so when uh, I was put in charge of one of the last modules on Mir, I said, well, we could streamline the process for integrating payloads if we had common interfaces. And so uh, I designed the uh, the CTBs, the soft stowage bags huh. um, that quite honestly was something no one else had ever thought of previously and so when the first mission was getting ready to dock with the Mir STS-71 in 1995 they uh, discovered just a few weeks before the flight we have no way to carry things over between the shuttle and the Mir hmm. how can we do this and I said well I have these CTBs in manufacture we were actually building them here on site at JSC they were in orbit within a matter of really weeks. Um, wow. And uh, so we, we were fortunate in having that available. Uh, computers, um, when we started the design of computers uh, for the space station in the 1980s, there was no such thing as a laptop computer. Um, the first small apples, uh, Apple computers were coming out probably around 87 or thereabouts. I remember when I went off to the source board uh, because I was the scribe, I was the person writing a lot of these documents, they uh, repackaged one of these Apple computers. It wasn't by any means a portable, we called it a luggable. <laughs> and um, But uh, we were looking at large refrigerator-sized racks full of computer equipment in the wow. 1980s. Uh, by the time of Mir, uh, when our first astronaut went up to the Mir, he said he really could have used some kind of a computer system to read documents on, read training manuals, because otherwise we had no way of sending up lots of different manuals. Uh, even during his off hours, he said, boy, I could use something just to watch a movie on. <laughs> and so uh, I was given the job to develop the first portable computer uh, to be used as um, a training aid and also to be able to be used in off-duty hours. I remember we recorded onto 
small eight millimeter cassettes, the Apollo 13 movie, among others, and sent those up in 1995. And of course, now today, all of the computers on the space station are basically portable computers. Mm -hmm. The PCS system of the of the uh, space station really is the heart of the computer system that drives everything. Uh, We have no rack sized computer equipment anymore. Thankfully, so um, we've gotten (laughs) away from that. But keep in mind, in 1985, when we got started, just didn't exist yet. Yeah, hadn't been invented. Um, a lot of the other equipment we were testing out first on NASA Mir, um, and then uh, we were observing some of the equipment that the Russians were using, their waste management system, their treadmill. Uh, we got into some uh, arguments here at the Johnson Space Center about how critical some hardware was. Hmm. So, for instance, uh, the ISS program at the time did not feel that exercise equipment was critical. And the exercise equipment we were developing was not put through a lot of testing uh, when we first launched it into orbit. And so the first crew started using it uh, around the year 2000. Uh, It immediately collapsed. Uh, It it had not been tested adequately. And um, so we had to go back and redesign it and rebuild it to be much stronger. And we discovered that if the crew cannot exercise, this is a critical failure. Mm -hmm. And you start thinking about bringing the crew home within a matter of a month or less. And uh, so it turns out it is really critical hardware and it is something that you need to give serious thought to and it has to be adequately tested before it goes into orbit. Mm-hmm. So uh, we were learning a lot of these lessons um, as we were going. Uh, we started out with the mirror flights that allowed us to test a lot of this equipment, uh, including some of the uh, scientific payloads. We sent up the uh, first microgravity glove boxes, uh, prototypes for what would later fly on the ISS. Uh, we sent up uh, other kinds of devices that were intended to limit the number of vibrations hmm. between the payload and the uh, vibrations of the structure of the space station. So we tested those out, and then we would launch up more uh, significant systems for the ISS. Uh, We uh, looked at the design of the Russian waste management system and also how they uh, use different systems for recycling air and water. And uh, we were already involved in developing some of that for the ISS. Uh, But the Russian approach was often very simple, uh, almost elegant in its simplicity. And so we adopted some of those approaches um, and made our systems a little bit simpler, too. And I think in the long run, that has worked out better uh, in terms of being able to maintain and support the system in orbit. Now, how about uh, data and communications? I know that was a big one over time and the improvements there. Well, a lot of, um, a lot of things really did improve significantly. Mir uh, showed us a lot of the problems of a space station or a lot of the potential problems. A lot of the, our experience on Mir was pretty negative because, first of all, Mir was very old when the U.S. started flying the shuttle up there. It was only intended to last about five years, and by the time the first shuttle visited, it was had been up there for nine years. Oh, wow. And by the end of the program, uh, we were going on about 15 years. Um, Mir had very limited communications uh, because of the, uh, the collapse of the Soviet government, uh, they really no longer had the Tedris uh, kind of a satellite that would allow them to maintain continuous communications. The geosynchronous so, ones. A geosynchronous yeah. communication satellite. And therefore, astronauts and cosmonauts could only communicate when they were within range of a few ground stations, mainly across the old Soviet empire. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so they were fairly limited in how much communications could go back and forth. In the meantime, we had computer systems that were growing more sophisticated. Uh, for instance, we had Wi-Fi uh, in the first laptop computers that we put on the mirror. Um, but the Russians were somewhat um, uh, hesitant to use something like that because of the potential interference of electromagnetic uh, signals and so on. Mm -hmm. And so we were learning a lot about how to do that, and they were learning quite a bit about uh, how that could affect things. By the time the International Space Station comes along just a few years later, uh, we, we had learned a lot of those lessons. We had grown somewhat more sophisticated. Uh, our systems were new, and they were working well. Uh, we were de- very dependent on computers on the ISS, mm. whereas Mir had evolved from being a pre-computer age kind of a station in the 70s and early 80s prior to Mir. Uh, they were more dependent on computers, but by the time of ISS in 1988, uh, we, we are very dependent on computers. In fact, um, the uh, the first crew that reaches the space station says they can't turn the lights on. They can't turn the lights on because you do it through the computer, and they you can't find the computer because the lights are off. And so um, so that was were some of the lessons that um, that we were learning at that time. So uh, so the computers were growing far more sophisticated and capable. Communications was um, was almost continuous. Uh, because we did have the Tidris system in orbit. Now, what did we learn about life on the station? Because this was really our, we were jumping right into some of these long expeditions and what it would take to operate over these periods of time. Again, um, we had learned on the Mir that a lot of the crew time is spent just maintaining the station. Hmm. And uh, fortunately, because the the uh, ISS was somewhat simpler and uh, there wasn't as much stuff on the inside. It was a little bit easier to access different areas, so it didn't take quite as much uh, time to maintain the systems. And when I'm talking about maintaining, just wiping down the interior with uh, various kind of uh, biological Uh, materials to control the growth of any kind of hazardous um, contaminants. Uh, That was something that we had faced on Mir Hmm. and on ISS. uh, Fortunately, we didn't have to deal with that as much, but we still had to spend um, at least about a day a week for by the crew cleaning uh, and maintaining a lot of the systems. Uh, We learned quite a bit about um, the health of the astronauts and how the health of the astronauts interface with the environmental control and life support system. So for instance, we knew uh, for a long time that the astronauts were losing minerals from their bones. Their bones were growing weaker like in osteoporosis. In the case of uh, the elderly, it was the same kind of thing in orbit, as well as the muscle mass of the astronauts was decreasing. And so uh, these were things that we needed various kinds of countermeasures, uh, exercise countermeasures. Uh, What we did not appreciate was a lot of these minerals that were coming out of the astronauts was coming out in the urine and therefore in our waste management system, which was processing the urine, uh, we formed uh, what euphemistically was called urine brickle, and it was clogging up the systems on the environmental control recycling equipment. And so we were learning quite a bit um, and had to go back and redesign some of the components so that it was uh, less susceptible to some of these kinds of problems. Wow. Now, you talked about a lot of crew time, especially on Mir, was dedicated to just maintaining, you know, fixing this or scrubbing down that. But I think the the goal of the International Space Station was eventually to move towards maximizing utilization time or the time you would dedicate to science. Uh, we had um, looked at how best to use the space station right along from the very beginning. 
Uh, a lot of the top-level NASA management felt that it was all about science. It was all about building a user community that was going to be supportive of human space flight. And uh, therefore, we were trying to develop experiments, uh, first on shuttle, later for Space Lab, and then Mir, that uh, could be developed into more sophisticated systems for use on the ISS. Uh, one of the problems early on on the ISS was that with the small number of crew members, initially uh, just uh, three and then eventually growing to four and not getting to eight until uh, later years, after mm -hmm. about ten years or so, uh, we really did not have as much crew time as we would have liked. If you take a look at the crewman's day and uh, how much time they have to spend of uh, maintaining themselves, whether for exercise or uh, cleanliness and so on, uh, but then um, how much time they actually had available for uh, for doing scientific work, it, it was uh, pretty constrained. And so we were learning quite a bit about how to either automate some of the systems, how to uh, operate a lot of the systems from the ground, and so uh, uh, this has been developed really to the point now where the astronauts, although they do have to do some on-orbit uh, actual maintenance of the station, most of the system-level activities operating the systems is done from the ground. And so the astronauts do not have to focus on that so much, and they do have more time to focus on scientific experiments. Yeah, and they're every kind that you can imagine their earth observation their biological their systems their they're really everything going i want to take a kind of zoom in on international space station history to the columbia accident what happened there in terms of the assembly and then what we had to rethink and redo and then get back up on our feet to fin eventually finish construction of the space station? Well, of course, the initial um, assembly mission occurred in 1988. Mm -hmm. And so from 88 until uh, 2003, when the Columbia accident occurred, uh, we were able to do a fair amount of assembly work, although we were somewhat limited because the Russians uh, were not moving along quite as quickly as we had hoped with the service module. Hmm. Uh, the, service, the, the Russians only have a limited number of people that they apply on any of their modules, and so they had to first um, do the FGB, and it wasn't until the FGB was in orbit that they were able to move on to the service module and get it ready to fly. Uh, that was finally ready. Uh, the first crew went up. Uh, the first long-duration crew went up in, I think, 2000. And uh, so they took their place in orbit. And so then we had about another uh, almost three years to work in space before the Columbia accident occurred. At the time the Columbia accident occurred, we really were not um, in the best of situation in terms of having all of the electrical power and uh, and radiator systems in place. We had just started building out the truss. Uh, we, in a way, we were fortunate in that we did have a fairly balanced station where equal amounts of truss had been placed on both sides, hmm. and therefore uh, it was somewhat easier to control and maintain an orbit. But, of course, we had been so focused on building and assembling the station using the shuttle that when the shuttle stopped flying after Columbia, uh, we really were not able to do any more assembly work. And so that, um, that stopped everything for about two years or so until the return to flight. And the return to flight, did that kick off a rapid set of assembly missions? So uh, one of the problems we had run into prior to Columbia was we were bringing the different elements of the station uh, down to Kennedy and preparing them to fly, but oftentimes we would have one element there and the next element that had to connect uh, was not really there to do any kind of testing on. Mm. Uh, so we frequently had to do simulators in place of the actual test articles. When the Columbia accident happened, uh, in a way it worked out fortunate in that 
all of the equipment began to coalesce at Kennedy Space Center. Mm -hmm. And so we could put a lot more of it together, test it out more thoroughly uh, prior to launch. And that way, when we, when we returned the shuttle to flight, uh, the assembly missions could go off uh, much more rapidly, almost at the pace of about one a month or so, one, one every uh, month and a half or so. And uh, so we were able to move along pretty quickly. Okay. Now, I want to talk about operations for a second, because I think you've mentioned it a few times that... Um, you, you mentioned the space station was designed to be a bit simpler, so the crew didn't have to do much. But really, this is different from even shuttle, where it was it was the crew that was that was flying the shuttle. The space station is almost flown from the ground, operated from the ground. You have 24/7 operations, and then on top of that, you have international operations. So tell me how that structure came about. Well, uh, of course, computers and computer networking has evolved quite a bit over the years, over the course of the last 20 years. And so this has allowed the people on the ground to have almost as much and sometimes even more insight into situation on the station than the crew has. Um, it also means that you can have specialists all over the world uh, specializing in their own systems they don't necessarily have to come here to Houston or, in the case of payloads, to the Marshall Center in Alabama. Uh, they can oftentimes stay in their own local control centers and operate their systems from uh, Oberpfaffenhofen, Germany, <laughs> or from, uh, from Tsukuba in Japan, or from wherever the location is. Uh, so that means uh, a lot more of the people that maintain and operate the station uh, can do it remotely, um, not only remote from the station, but remote parts of the earth. Hmm. And what, is it, what did it take to switch to, um, because for, when it comes to mission control, uh, before the International Space Station, a lot of what we know is mission control was staffed for a mission. And you would you would train and you would do simulations and you would do that. But this now we're talking about continuous staffing, making sure that someone's in the room at all times because you already mentioned it, almost 20 years of continuous human presence now, someone's got to be monitoring those guys. Uh, on the one hand, uh, we have people on the ground continuously monitoring and continuously operating the systems. Yeah. And on the other hand, uh, through the use of intelligent systems and a lot more understanding of how the systems operate, we can have a relatively small number of people operating the station and so uh, the number of people we have during a holiday or on a weekend is not nearly what we would have during a normal work day uh, whether in Houston or in other parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, now keep in mind um, while this is somewhat simplified and, and let made somewhat less expensive, the operation of the station today uh, when we start talking about whether it's a moon base where there's a communications lapse of several seconds or a Mars mission where the communications lapse can be more on the order of uh, 45 minutes, hmm. um, we have to start rethinking, uh, is, is this going to be the way in which we can operate? Uh, how, do we, how do we operate the systems uh, when you can't do it real time? Yeah, definitely a huge consideration. And I want to kind of take that as a jumping off point from we've had this uh, long conversation about the International Space Station and what I, what that really I'm trying to establish is just what went into this thing what it what it takes to put this thing together to construct it to to make it permanently habitable for 20 years thinking about that thinking about those lessons what are we taking now and putting towards the gateway which is not meant to be continuously inhabited but there's you know we talked about improvements of technology and just lessons that we've learned throughout these whole year all of these years going towards a moon orbiting platform well the um right from the very start we envisioned the space station in low earth orbit as being a prototype for the kind of vehicle that would you would use for not so much lunar as much as planetary missions, mm. uh, a vehicle that would take off for 
many months or even years to carry astronauts to distant planets. Uh, early on, we were thinking about the planets Venus and Mars. Now our, our main focus is particularly Mars. And so depending on the mission that we would be going on, um, it could be a mission of anywhere from 18 months at probably at the minimum to several years, three or four years, maybe even longer than that. Uh, Gateway is a particularly um, uh, particular kind of space station that would be used to support the lunar missions. And so uh, because of the way in which the Orion is developed, uh, it would need a base in orbit around the moon that it would be able to uh, to dock to and stay there while astronauts are down on the lunar surface and then uh, carry the astronauts back from the gateway back to the Earth. And so uh, right from the outset, we were looking at developing the kinds of systems that would be required for taking care of people for very long durations. And when I say taking care of people, they not only have to be operable, uh, they really have to uh, be able to operate with minimal maintenance, with Mm -hmm. minimal kinds of uh, systems difficulties over very long periods. And I think we've been doing that. We've been doing that with the, not only the environmental control system, uh, the exercise systems that are uh, fairly critical in keeping the people uh, healthy and active, uh, but um, with computer systems, communication systems, all of the different systems that we need uh, to support a space station, we're learning how to depend upon them. And uh, through some of the problems we have faced, we're, uh, we're learning how to redesign and develop them in such a way that w- they are dependable for future years. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting is we're talking about the International Space Station being a lesson for traveling further out into the solar system, which I think was one of its many purposes from the get-go was to to learn how how to do that, how to design systems, how to live and work in space for a long period of time. But I know we still want low Earth orbit as a place to continue to practice, to continue to develop technologies, to continue to train crews. This is this is a place we need. And looking further, further into the future, the International Space Station is not meant to be there forever. So the transition is to a more commercial economy. Tell me about the transition on the International Space Station, what, we know, what we're learning and what we're doing now to eventually transition to this low Earth orbit economy? Well, of course, the space station, because of its location in low Earth orbit, has a number of attributes that are useful. One of them is uh, microgravity or zero gravity so that we uh, can look at different kinds of physical processes in orbit in this uh, very low gravity field environment as compared with one gravity here on the Earth. Mm-hmm. Another aspect is the uh, the observational aspect, and so we have um, scientific windows, we have the cupola windows of the station, and the astronauts uh, spend a fair amount of time looking at the Earth and particularly um, looking at things which really haven't been planned in advance. So if there are fires in Australia or volcanic eruptions, uh, they're right there looking at them, taking pictures, uh, making observations. Uh, And, uh, of course, these were all things that were foreseen from the outset, and uh, we've seen that they uh, have been useful for different kinds of companies, some of them looking at very basic research, others uh, are more specific, uh, looking at much more specific kinds of products. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2005, the ISS was designated a national laboratory And in 2011, they brought in an independent organization uh, called CASIS to operate the national lab. And uh, they go out around the country and uh, try to tell people about the, uh, the availability and the possibilities of using the International Space Station. Uh, Other companies have been coming along, uh, Axiom Space, uh, Mr. Bigelow with his inflatable modules, and so uh, others are coming along and 
depending on whether there is a, um, a a commercial opportunity or not, whether they can make access to space reasonably inexpensive and, uh, and they have an orbiting platform, then in the future the, uh, the opportunity will be there for commercial operations in a space station. Mm. In the meantime, the ISS is being used in this way already, uh, not only by the U.S. The Russians, of course, have um, famously been bringing various tourists up to, uh, to the space station for visits. And uh, in the future, we think that uh, we'll have more opportunity uh, for various kinds of commercial activities on the station. Yeah. Do you think... Um, what, what you're talking about now, I mean, we, we talked about um, International Space Station informing uh, lunar exploration, informing Mars exploration, and everything it takes there, uh, being in this place where there's commercial uh, viability um, for, for operating in space. Do you think the international, how, how big of a role do you think the International Space Station played in that? And do you think it we can even be in this place without the International Space Station? Uh, I think the the International Space Station has been critical in learning how to design, build, and operate different kinds of hardware and systems, learning how to work together with international partners. Uh, keep in mind we have not only the Russians, but uh, 16 or 17 different countries. number has varied over the years. Um, and we've learned how to work with them. Uh, I know uh, early on I worked very closely with the Russians. They did not really have a good understanding of how the U.S. went about uh, putting things in orbit on the <laughs> shuttle or on the station. And uh, we developed joint integration processes, joint documentation. I know I was uh, talking with my Russian counterpart from the Mir years just a few weeks ago, and <laughs> he says, well, the work that we had laid in 1994, 1993 is still the basis for how the Russians work today. Wow. So they were, learned a great deal about uh, how the uh, more advanced world, I guess, uh, does payloads and science and experiments in orbit. Uh, and at the same time, we've learned how a lot of their hardware is built and designed. I know I was involved in the design of moon bases and Mars vehicles <laughs> back during uh, the first President Bush's space exploration initiative. And a lot of the hardware that we have actually built for the space station today, whether it's the most basic hardware, the modules, the nodes, the racks, the cupola, uh, or down to the more detailed aspects, uh, the CTBs, the stowage bags, the, uh, the computer systems, the communication systems, a, a lot of these will actually become the components of future uh, moon bases and Mars spacecraft, uh, just as today we're looking at using a lot of these pieces on the gateway in orbit around the moon. Wow. What are you looking forward to the most then for the future? You have this gigantic history in your brain of everything that's happened over the years to get to this point. What are you looking forward to the most? Well, uh, I've, uh, I've been um, lucky enough to participate in a lot of these programs and even have a hand in the design and development of the lot, a lot of the hardware. And so every time I see whether it's the CTBs or the cupola or the cost computer system, these were all things that I had a direct hand in. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those same systems uh, <laughs> on the first moon base uh, or on the first Mars spacecraft. Uh, right now I'm looking at them in orbit around the Earth. Um, yeah. You know, the cupola, of course, is famous as the uh, the astronauts' favorite place in space to observe the Earth. Uh, that grew out of a lot of um, uh, infighting in terms of what we the astronauts needed, what we had to be able to provide for the astronauts. And uh, we're lucky that we have it in orbit today, but now I'm looking at putting the system just like that on <laughs> the uh, moon base and on Mars. 
Leaving your mark on human space exploration forever. That's amazing. Gary, thank you so much for going through this history. This has been a fascinating two discussions, really, through, through the concept of space stations, through what we've learned and what, we, what it's taken to put together the International Space Station and laying the groundwork for what's to come. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I was a, I'm glad that I was able to, uh, to offer something of interest. I loved it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. I hope you listened to two of these parts with our conversation with Dr. Gary, Gary Kitmacher. This is episode 133. If you haven't, go back and listen to episode 132. It's a fascinating conversa- uh, conversation on everything that happened before the International Space Station. I hope you tune in. You can find it at nasa.gov slash podcasts, along with the other NASA podcasts that we have. There are the many space centers here at NASA. If you want to learn more about the International Space Station, I'd be surprised, but there is more that you can investigate at nasa.gov slash ISS. We got uh, social media places where you can go, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search the International Space Station. We got accounts on all three of those. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show, and make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. For our students out there, I have a quick plug for you. Research in the microgravity environment of the International Space Station is still as important as ever. And to celebrate 20 years of continuous human presence, both living and working in space, our STEM on Station team here at the Johnson Space Center will fund five student-designed payloads to fly to and return from the space station as part of the Student Payload Opportunity with Citizen Science, or SPOCS, S-P-O-C-S. Uh, For more information and to submit proposals and uh, just make sure to check out nasa.gov slash STEM on station slash SPOCS, S-P-O-C-S. Mark it on your calendars that the submissions are due by 5 p.m. Eastern on March 27th, 2020. This episode was recorded on January 24th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norm Moran, Belinda Polito, and Kelly Humphreys. Thanks again to Dr. Gary Kitmacher for coming on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and uh, tell us what you think about the show. We'll be back next week.